Hey, y'all, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in.net. As y'all can tell, I am not Sean. Uh, he's not with us today, but uh, I am joined by uh, Joel. Joel, how are you doing this morning? Oh, doing good, everybody. It's early morning, unusual for us recording in the morning here, but right. uh, we have to accommodate guests in different time zones occasionally, so we're, uh, we're up and going early. Yeah, and our guest this morning is in Europe. Right, so it's afternoon for him, and it's Martin Baliel. Yeah. Martin, how you doing? Good. How are you? We're good. We're good. Thank you for joining us. Happy to do so. Yeah, and it's definitely not morning here, so I'm wide awake and ready for this. <laughs> so, so you work for for JetBrains, right? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your background? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you said, I'm uh, Martin, and um, I started my job. I think close to, to 18 years ago doing uh, consultancy. So I've seen every single size of companies that are there and uh, done a lot of projects, all .NET related and then web technology related. And a couple of years back, um, I got in touch by speaking at community events and so on with one of the folks at JetBrains, uh, Hadi Hariri. And he asked me, dude, do you want to join uh, JetBrains? Because it would be good to have you on board because you have uh, the technical background as well as uh, the speaking community background. And so I did, and I became a developer advocate there. For Yeah, my, my answer would be, heck yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. It was pretty much the answer, yeah. Yeah, cool, cool. Do you feel like you've maxed out in your core areas of expertise in programming? Not sure what to learn next or how that'll help you get to the next stage of your career? Let me help. I'm starting a program to help developers move up in their careers using proven techniques and by starting a podcast in order to advance. Right now, I'm only scheduling calls to see where you're at, where you want to go, and how you can get there. I'm not doing any sales pitches. You can schedule that call at devchat.tv slash next level. So what do you what do you do at, at JetBrains as a developer advocate? It, it's a very hard role to describe because essentially I would say I do whatever I feel like doing, which is also a good thing. I think our main goal as .NET developer advocates or uh, developer advocates in general at JetBrains is to be the best friend of developers, both internal and external, which means that we join community events, do things like these podcasts, write a blog post, uh, do some streaming, some YouTube videos and things like that to essentially bring all of the good things that our folks are building in the teams to our users and potential users out there, but also in the opposite direction where we take scenarios that you may be encountering when you are using our products and our teams do not immediately see whether they are valuable or not. Uh, we take them back and essentially act as the liaison between uh, our development teams and external developers out there, which is, um, yeah, in a nutshell, what we do. At JetBrains, there's a little bit of difference there as well, because we are developer advocates, and JetBrains really encourages us to also be developers. Uh, so on my side, for example, I work on the Azure Toolkit for Rider as well as a developer, so that I, uh, first of all, am part of the team um, when developing our products. But second of all, uh, people can also ask questions and expect that I actually yeah, am, am knee deep into our products as well. <laughs> I would imagine That's, in a normal year, you probably actually do a fair bit of going to conferences and talking about the tools then? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think on average, I, I would be on the road every two weeks on average. 
Sure. Given that there's a summer period and it's a quiet season there, you can imagine there's a, there's quite a bit of travel involved. And this year that is uh, fortunate and unfortunate that there's less travel involved. Yeah, I uh, I watched your NDC talk about Ryder, which we're going to discuss in this episode. And you were you were basically saying right how it was it was tough not to be able to be there, right? Because you you enjoy the the going to the conference and seeing everybody. But I think you said you you set your camera up so you could shake a little bit and and people would kind of get a feel of you walking back and forth. <laughs> so yeah, I mean you have to do something that resembles uh, reality a little bit, right? Right, right. So so like I mentioned, we're actually going to be talking um, some about Ryder, and your talk was really about how Ryder came about and how how you know JetBrains had to figure out how to develop Ryder, you know, and integrate uh, ReSharper and all that. So can you can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I don't know if everyone listening is going to be aware about uh, yeah how JetBrains came to be and, and how our products came to be. So I'll give a little bit of history there. So I think when JetBrains started back in 2000, we essentially came up with a product called IntelliJ Renamer, which was a project that would do the rename refactoring. Imagine having one product that takes your code base and is able to rename uh, one class or one file in that project, right? Um, that became our IDE, IntelliJ, in, in 2001, I think. And we started building on that and extending it and making it a proper IDE for, for Java developers. At some point, we also came up with ReSharper, which was a plugin or still is a plugin to Visual Studio that gives you essentially the same features that IntelliJ has in terms of refactoring, in terms of code completion, analysis, and things like that. And uh, we've been doing that for a while. But over all these years, visiting different conferences and so on, a lot of people have asked us, like, you are a plugin to Visual Studio. When are you guys going to do your own ID? When, when is the JetBrains.net IDE coming? And we always put that a little bit on the back burner, like not really interested in, to, in doing that. But then .NET Core came about and we thought, okay, there is no cross-platform IDE that is the same on every single platform as well. Because right now, if you look at Visual Studio, for example, you have VS for Mac, you have VS Code, but there's no one story across all of the different platforms there. So we thought, okay, maybe now is the time to actually start thinking and working on that product, uh, which is going to be a JetBrains.net IDE, and that's how Ryder came to be. Now, there's a yeah, there's also a couple of downsides to uh, coming up with that idea, because we obviously had ReSharper, we obviously had IntelliJ IDE as well. So what could we do to build our products as a, as a .NET IDE? Are we going to reuse all of IntelliJ IDEA and essentially build a .NET IDE completely in Java? Or are we going to do the opposite thing where we extend or expand on ReSharper and build something that works cross-platform and that has WinForms or WPF frontends that also works on Linux and Mac? And that is more complex than you would think. But also... Yeah, it sounds, sounds yeah. like either one of those would be a monumental task, really. Right. Yeah. So um, essentially, we started thinking about that, and we thought none of those would be a good idea um, because, yeah, like you put it, it's a monumental task. Uh, implementing ReSharper in Java would be something that, that is essentially quite feasible because it's 
just like Java, yet another language that you parse uh, being C sharp. So that would be feasible. But the downside would be that we still want to have ReSharp around as well. And ReSharp is still a product that a lot of people uh, use and love. So we did not want to maintain two code bases that are parsing C sharp and doing all of the smarts around that. So that was a no-go. The other way around also was a no-go because doing WinForms properly on Linux and Mac, for example, is something that is incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. uh, and in terms of cross-platform toolkits, yes, nowadays things are emerging. There's things like Avalonia UI, for example, uh, that are bringing that promise of having one UI framework that works across all of those platforms. But, but five years ago, when we started this writer journey, none of that existed. So uh, that was also a, a hard thing to do. You know, would you say that like cross-platform tools for phone is probably, for especially the UI part, that for phone, it's far ahead of cross-platform for desktop? I, I think nowadays our industry is evolving to make that more possible for desktop development as well. But yes, I would say things like Xamarin, and, and things like Flutter, for example, that make it possible for you to write your UI essentially once and reuse it on different mobile platforms is something that, uh, that, is, that is brilliant, to be honest. And on desktop, you see those things are emerging now as well. Uh, if you look at Maui in the .NET space, for example, that is coming, that is something that seems promising in terms of cross-platform UIs. Uh, don't forget Electron, even though that is essentially hosting your web application, but it gives you an ability to write something that is cross-platform and looks the same on every single platform. And one interesting that came, one interesting thing that came from those mobile cross-platform development things is Jetpack Compose. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Uh, so no, in the no. Google space for Android development, there's this technology called Jetpack Compose, which is somewhat like Flutter, where you define your UI uh, using codes and you can, you can essentially transpile it and use it on different platforms. At JetBrains, we are interested in that one. And we are currently contributing uh, Jetpack Compose to also work on, uh, on the desktop. So essentially, you could reuse uh, the same technologies in the same way of building your UIs uh, and, and UX flows using one framework, both on mobile as well as on desktop. Right. The the less code you have to write and you can target more systems, the better, right? And I think that's that's kind of where everyone's, everyone's driving. Uh, I, I know, right, Blazor, it's 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 different, but, right, you, you learn one, one primary language, C-sharp, right? Yep. And you can use it in all these different places. So I definitely like the direction that that a lot of these frameworks and tools are going it's nice to to know multiple languages if you want, but hey, if you're a brand new developer, you know, and you don't want to have to pick up five languages to develop an application, yeah. uh, this definitely streamlines that process. Yeah, there, there's that part, and also the fact that people have the choice of using different types of hardware, different types of operating systems. So why not uh, make all of your tools that you're building, even, even for us as JetBrains, why not try to make them all available across all platforms so people can just use whatever they feel most comfortable with without having to switch just to be able to use a specific tool or a specific application. So how did y'all um, decide to, to incorporate IntelliJ and ReSharper? How did you get those to work together to become writer? Yeah, so um, yeah, I mentioned rewriting one in the other technology was right. not an option. Coming up with that cross-platform technology was also not an option back then. So we decided, okay, well, what if we take IntelliJ IDEA 
which is already the front end for multiple other IDs. For example, Android Studio, Google is leveraging our open source IntelliJ uh, to also come up with Android Studio. Why not reuse that as the front ends and then uh, bolt ReSharper underneath in a headless mode, serving as some sort of a language server to make, to make all of that work. And we decided that would be a good avenue to explore. And we started doing that. I think we spent about, yeah, a good half year or close to a year trying all kinds of different technologies, trying to make that UI work with, with a ReSharper backend. And uh, all of that kind of worked, but not ideal. At some point, we were using a ReSharper web API, essentially, that ran on your local machine where the front end would make calls to the back end in ReSharper, and then ReSharper would uh, respond with something, and then that would show up in your, uh, in your front end. It was IntelliJ. And all of that kind of worked, but we quickly found out that the typical request response scenario was not ideally suited for building an IDE, especially if that IDE is more than just uh, bolting a UI on top of, of ReSharper. We were essentially bolting an IDE on top of another IDE because IntelliJ as a front end already has source control. It comes with code analysis. It comes with the, the editor window that you have with Git integration, all of that. And we were kind of in a one plus one uh, situation where getting those two together would give us a new IDE that is that is more than the sum of the whole. And, and yeah, as as you put it in your your video, one plus one equals three, and that really doesn't work long term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think in a talk as well, I give one example, and I still think that is one of the better examples uh, to give in in terms of that one plus one equals three. Our front end does all of the documents. You see syntax highlighting and so on. So if you would open a C-sharp file there, you would see all nice colors and everything would work and you can type and refactor and whatnot. But if you have a string in your C-sharp codes, we can do SQL language injections inside of that string, which means that if you connect to a database, you get select star from whatever completion inside a C-sharp string. Mm. None of that is in ReSharper. All of that is in the front-end. So it's essentially the front-end providing the database integration and the completion within that string. But everything around it is really uh, ReSharper. Uh, one of the other examples, ReSharper has support for Blazor, for JavaScript, and so on. If you have Visual Studio, we extend on that in Visual Studio. Whereas in Writer, um, since we are using IntelliJ as the platform, we already have a rich web editor uh, called WebStorm there. We disabled much of the web stuff from ReSharper there because it's essentially already duplicates. And when you're editing a Razor file in Writer, you essentially get some parts that are handled by the front ends, namely all of the JavaScript and, and CSS and HTML, for example, whereas all of the C-sharp snippets of that file are being handled by ReSharper in the backend. So it's it's quite amazing, actually, in terms of, uh, of making that work. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually like to, to dig in a little bit more about how that works, but I'm curious how you decided which system you use for what. Right, I know ReSharper is, is primarily like a C-sharp plugin, right? And people use it in Visual Studio a lot. Did you decide to focus on the C-sharp side of things in ReSharper and let IntelliJ handle everything else? Um, th that's an interesting question. Uh, actually, if you look at uh, many of the EAPs of the early access previews versions uh, back in 2017 when we were releasing Writer, 
you will see in the change notes that every once in a while we would say, okay, now all of the web stuff is handled by ReSharper. Then three releases later, everything would be handled by, uh, by the front end and then some intermediate version. And we've been going back and forth really in releasing versions of that to get feedback. Uh, and in the end, we found that um, yeah, having all of the, the web front end things handled by IntelliJ was not only beneficial to having the full flow of, of web development in, in IntelliJ, but also to be able to make plugins work. Uh, IntelliJ has a lot of plugins uh, okay. that exist for all of the web functionality as well. And we decided if we push everything into ReSharper, none of those will work. Whereas if we, if we open this up to people to plug into and, and light up existing plugins, then people using Rider can also use those and, and benefit from having those around. And yeah, I think that makes right sense. now, I would say like 95% is handled by the front end. We still do some things on the back end, especially in terms of Razor, where your C-sharp somehow interacts with everything else. Uh, mm -hmm. So we have to be aware of the fact that there's uh, maybe HTML and, C and, uh, and JavaScript involved. But most of the things you see are handled by, by the IntelliJ side. Cool. So what, what solution did y'all end up coming up to to get the two to work together and not have that, that extra overhead and all that IDE sitting on top of an IDE uh, issue? Yeah, so having a request response cycle apparently did not work. So we started looking into what, what everyone else was doing. Uh, I think Visual Studio Code back then was also looking at uh, having this idea of having language servers where you have the IDE essentially talking with whatever language you are using. And they come up, came up with the uh, language server protocol, which they still use today and which works well for their scenario. Unfortunately, again, for us, LSP language server protocol did not really work out because we had that, uh, we did not have a request response cycle with just the UI on top of, of a backend language server. We had two IDEs communicating together. So LSP for us also did not work out. And we, we did some further ex experimentation until a couple of people on the team said, okay, maybe request response is not the way to go. Maybe we need to work with some sort of a view model uh, that works between things. Uh, so we started iterating on that. And in the end came up with the RD protocol, which is our protocol for writer, RD, that gives you a model that is the IDE in that model. To give you an okay. example, instead yeah. of having something happen while you type in the front ends, instead of giving that information to the backends, what the front end is doing is uh, making that change in our view model that is in that protocol and the backend subscribes to it. So it's really like a reactive flow of events and then someone else can respond to that. Um, I always like to give the example of uh, NuGet, for example. If you use NuGet in, uh, in Rider, what you will see is that when you install a package, which you obviously invoke from within the front end, from within the UI, uh, you install a package and you see that the package gets installed, but you also get back some logging information. Now, all of that's installation and all of that logging is handled on the ReSharper side of things, but you still want that to flow to the front ends. And instead of us querying for that, instead of us having to keep track of whatever is happening on the ReSharper side and then showing that in UI, essentially the protocol gives us one collection of strings. And that collection of strings is all of the log entries that go over the wire, but both the front end and the back end can contribute to that. So ReSharper can put some string in that collection and then the front end can see it, but also vice versa. 
If the front-end wants to write log items into that same collection, it can perfectly do so, and ReSharper can then decide whether it wants to respond to that change or not. So instead of oh, uh, really having commands that do something, we have a model that essentially subscribes to all of the events going on in the, in the entire system. That's really nice. I mean, that sounds like it would speed it up tremendously. So instead of like doing this stuff on the front end and then waiting till this point, and then I'm going to call ReSharper and wait for a response, it sounds like you almost have like two directional publish subscribe, right? One where yeah. the back end can subscribe to what's happening on the front end, and another one where the front end is going to subscribe with lists and present opportunities to show things to all the possible back ends. That sounds like a really nice design. Yeah, that, that's exactly what is happening. So it's a bi-directional uh, publish-subscribe mechanism. What, what's really interesting is that the model is really, I would almost say that Rider is that model and not necessarily ReSharper and IntelliJ IDEA. It is really that model. An interesting side effect of having that model there is that we can also share it with other processes. So when we were releasing Rider, uh, we wanted to look into having plugins that could work on the ReSharper site as well as on the UI site. And one of the plugins that we built was a Unity plugin to just see whether we could hook into the C-Sharp side of things as well as the UI. And that Unity plugin essentially became a separate product, uh, which you can still use today, uh, that gives you a, a really good gaming development experience if you're using the Unity editor there. Now, Unity has their own editor, which, which obviously does a lot of things while you are developing your game too. It handles most of the uh, front-end things like your 3D model and making sure that you can position all of your objects and so on. But still, you have your code as well. And instead of you having to save things in the Unity editor, then having to open it up in Writer, do your C-sharp coding, then switch back and forth between all of those products, Instead, what we did was we also built a plugin to Unity's editor that also brings our model into the Unity editor so that it also could contribute to that same model, uh, which is really cool. Um, I think one of the, the features that blew my mind the first time I saw it was uh, when we have a find usages where you have an event that you subscribe on a button click, for example, in your game, we can do a find usages between your C-sharp codes that you have open in, uh, in Writer, show all of the C-sharp usages in Writer, but also jump to the editor and show you exactly which button is subscribing to that event, for example. You know, it's you, I, always I'm, amazing just ahead, how John. much work it takes on the back end to make it seem seamless to the user on the front end. It's just yeah, the, the yeah. amount of integration can be astounding. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. 
there are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresin.net.com slash Raygun. In my experience, right, it is awesome when you develop something um, and you come up with a, with a quality pattern that works and then you find these positive side effects because you, you did it, you know, quote unquote, the right yeah. way, yeah. right? Yeah, one, one other interesting side effect there is that unfortunately not for Rider, but for all of our other IDs, we now have collaborative code editing where you can share your editor and essentially follow what everyone else is doing to accommodate in, in pair programming. Um, that entire thing is making use of the same pro uh, protocol that Rider is using. Now, the irony is that because Rider has its own model uh, that is not shared with any of the other IDs, it's a little bit harder for us to bolt that onto that, that code with me or that code sharing uh, model. But essentially, if you use WebStorm, for example, or PHP Storm, and you want to do collaborative editing, uh, we do the same thing there. We set up a connection between my IDE and maybe your IDE, and we both contribute to the same model of all of the documents, of all the source code, of all of the analyzers that are there. And we both essentially push things. Uh, both of our IDs are subscribed to it, and we will see the results. If at some point we would need a third participant in there, that's no issue. They subscribe to the same model, and the same thing happens over and over again, and it will just work. Cool. So this right, the model sounds awesome. It seems like it works, or sounds like it would work really well. Do y'all, because they are two different systems talking to each other and they may not think exactly like, do you, have you run into issues with uh, maybe concurrency, right? ReSharper wants to do it this way. IntelliJ wants to do it this way. Who ends up winning? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a good example there would be while you are writing codes, uh, maybe you also start a refactoring, but that refactoring takes a couple of seconds to complete, but you still continue typing then who wins in that case? And we, we spent a lot of time trying to get everything in sync and replay things and, and make sure that things would work together. But in the end, the most simple solution actually proved the one that, that actually worked, and that is last one wins. So if you are typing while ReSharp, uh, while ReSharp is doing a refactoring and we send that refactoring results back to, to the model where the UI can, uh, can subscribe to it, the model essentially says this document has already been changed revert whatever you've been doing because this is your new reality. Last one wins. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So so now that you right, you you worked out how to integrate the two, right? Sharper more is the back end and IntelliJ is the the UI. How did you uh, evolve it from there? Because right, like you said, you've been working on it for five years. You guys have been constantly iterating and adding to it. How's that process gone, you know, after you resolved that that pattern? I think the main thing that we saw happen was that developers came up with cool ways of extending that model to other processes. Uh, so Unity was one example. Uh, other examples are, for example, remote debugging. Uh, our debugger is a process that attaches to your application that is running and then Rider attaches to that intermediate process. But we thought, okay, since we already have that protocol between Rider and the debugger, why not just put that debugger in your Docker container or on a remote machine? We set up a socket that speaks our protocol and then we can do remote debugging or debugging on Docker. So that is happening right now. Other things that we see happen, 
is that uh, the protocol is now also being used to share UI states and UI, uh, UI designs even. If you look at new features in ReSharper and Writer, they, are, they both share the same code base in terms of how C Sharp language and VB.NET and so on is handled. But still, at some point, you need some UI as well. Uh, so right now, what happens, for example, is if we introduce a new configuration dialog or some new panel in the configuration in ReSharper or Writer, we essentially write it up in a format that the protocol would also understand. Very similar to how you would use a Flutter UI, for example, really a declarative UI where you say, okay, I want to have multiple rows and in those rows, I want to have a button and things like that. Uh, but they are written in that protocol. And now we have renders that exist both in ReSharper as well as in Writer that can then use that information to give you the actual UI. So our developers no longer have to think about, okay, is this going to end up in Writer as well? Can I use WPF or should I go with, with the technology that, that Writer is using? They don't have to think about that anymore. They can essentially yeah, describe their UI in C-sharp if they are writing it in our, in our ReSharper backends. We translate that over the protocol to a render that we have in Writer and you see the UI in, in Writer as well as in ReSharper, for example. So are, are y'all using a microservice architecture for, for these different pieces? Uh, you could almost say that, yes. So like I mentioned, we have that, that one model uh, that is essentially the protocol uh, that is shared by, for example, the debugger, for example, by Unity, uh, that is shared by our front end as well as the backend ReSharper. We are essentially introducing multiple processes that all subscribe to that model again. So if you think of microservices, a lot of people would not always need, for example, a WPF preview render in Writer. Only when you have a WPF project, you will need that thing. Well, what we do is if you have a WPF project, we spin up another process that looks at the same codes and contributes a, um, a screen rendering of whatever you are writing to that model, which then can be shown in the UI. A nice benefit of that is that we can load those things on demand and unload them when they are not needed. But they can also crash independently. Um, like for example, if you have that WPF reviewer, you have a control that throws an exception. We don't crash the entire render process or we don't crash the entire IDE. We only crash out the, uh, the render process and nothing happens apart from the fact that we can show you that your XAML was invalid, for example. Do y'all have uh, your own uh, chaos monkey, kind of like Netflix? <laughs> uh, no, no, we don't. But, but actually what you can do is uh, if you open up your process manager when you're running Writer, you will see that you have the Writer main process and there's a bunch of smaller processes spun up depending on what you are doing. Uh, you can actually kill those if you want and uh, you will see that Writer should be able to recover in most situations. Spin up That's new awesome. I'll subscribe again to the model and uh, and be done with it. No, that that is great, and and I imagine also the the being able to to inject the pieces you're actually using or turn pieces on and off makes Rider a much more lightweight, right? You know, as you're using it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one one very recent example actually in uh, in C sharp nine and .NET five. I don't know if you've seen that Microsoft came up with those source generators that you can run. What those do essentially is based on changes you make in your code base, a source generator can run and then do something and generate some additional code for you if you want. So for example, if you have a class and you want to generate, I don't know, maybe a get hash code method or something like that, 
you can write a small annotation and then uh, your source generator can generate that code and add it into your compilation model. Now, in Rider, we have one of those microprocessors that also run Roslyn uh, analyzers. So if you have a project and we see that there's a Roslyn analyzer in it, we spin up a second project, uh, well, not a second, but maybe a fifth process that does the, the Roslyn analysis. And we get those results and we can add them in the model and show them in the UI. Well, source generators are actually also running in that same Roslyn model because source generators are really a Roslyn only thing and they are actually implemented as Roslyn analyzers. When we see that you have one defined in your project, we can spin up that project and get an information from this backend process again into the main UI. If you're not using any of those things, then that process will not exist for your, uh, for your projects. It really sounds like the development of Writer has helped both IntelliJ and ReSharper and Writer as a whole, right? They, they're, they're helping each other become better products. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is also one of the interesting. So, uh, one of the interesting things for Rider, we did a lot of uh, redesign of a lot of the UX patterns that existed in IntelliJ because they were very focused on not really on Java developers, but but yeah, they tended to go more in that direction. And in Rider, we decided to rethink a number of those, and uh, those changes were made in Rider and have eventually found their way back into the main IntelliJ product as well and are now also in WebStorm, for example. If you see on Windows that your uh, menu bar is now all of a sudden integrated with the title bar, that is a change that originally comes from Rider there. Also with ReSharper, with ReSharper, we are facing some issues in Visual Studio where the memory space of having Visual Studio, Roslyn, ReSharper, all of those things in one process means that Visual Studio is essentially doing a lot of memory garbage collections. Uh, what we are now trying to do is also bring ReSharper out of process uh, from Visual Studio so that ReSharper essentially runs very similar to how we run Rider. Uh, the downside is that it's essentially rebuilding Rider because the model that Visual Studio has is obviously not the model that we had in IntelliJ, but we are uh, making progress on, on making that happen and having ReSharper essentially reuse that same technology there while Rider is still using all the technology that ReSharper has in terms of code smarts. Yeah, I, I can imagine that's going to be huge for Visual Studio developers, right? The the performance and resource usage. Because I know, right, the the more extensions or extra packages you have in Visual Studio, the the heavier it gets. And right, it's been in the last year that they they actually updated it so you could do stuff out of process or they actually suggested you do it that way because it, it helps everybody. That's great. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I mean, Visual Studio, if, if you think about it, it's also an application that is uh, quite old already. And it's impressive to see what, what, the, what Microsoft is doing there, evolving Visual Studio, making sure that the thing works without uh, breaking extensions from 10 years ago, for example. And obviously, if you want to be a good extension, we have to go out of process and, and yeah, behave like a modern extension to Visual Studio. It's, it's incredible to see how they keep evolving that product and, and keep it current as well. We've actually had that discussion on the podcast a couple of times, going from .NET Framework to .NET Core and, and how they all work and, and when is Microsoft going to stop using .NET Framework? And we basically said, not anytime soon. I'm sure their intention eventually is to, is to move everything to .NET Core. But like you said, Visual Studio has been around for so long and 
and has so many pieces and parts in it that it's, it's going to take a while for them to make their changes. But the fact that they can actually do some of this, like the out of process, running stuff out of process is, yeah. is brilliant, right? So, Yeah, and, and I think in the end, uh, one of the more interesting things, I think, of uh, Rider coming into existence, of VS Code coming into existence, is that all of the IDEs are pushing each other to become better. And you see a lot of that happen, and uh, all of the IDs are essentially moving forward at a much faster pace than they have been doing in the past. So um, I would say a lot of people have been thinking that .NET has been the typical enterprise development thing, not moving fast. But with .NET Core, with all of those new IDs, uh, you essentially see that the ecosystem is moving faster and faster and, and forwards. Yeah, I, I couldn't be happier uh, personally with the direction that they've taken .NET, .NET Core, right? And, and again, we've also had this discussion about uh, system.web and .NET Framework and how big and bloated it got and how you had you, you could not have it because of all the bits and pieces that, that you really yeah, needed yeah. to use from it. So that, That's yeah, actually a blog post uh, that I remember writing a couple of years back when I was still a consultant, I think, uh, about okay. setting up your, your build server. Making sure that you had all of the dependencies installed, it would be a nightmare. And now with .NET Core, you essentially bring your products, you clone things from your Git repo, and you're good to go. Is there anything that we that we've missed or that we haven't brought up about Rider that you you want our listeners to to know? I, I would say try it out. Um, I'm, I'm not sure everyone knows that Rider exists actually, so I would mm. say give it a try. Uh, if you have feedback, we would love to hear. And is there anything that, that people should be aware of? Uh, yeah, it's a full IDE. It works with your solution files, with your project files, so you can use it uh, on any .NET project that you may have, including .NET Framework. Um, on Windows, we even have a WinForms designer if you want to use that still. So yeah, if everything that you can do in .NET will work in, uh, in Rider. Awesome, awesome. Okay, well, unless you, you have any questions, Joel, I think we'll, we'll move on to picks. Right. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. And why don't, you, why don't you go first? Yeah, so I was uh, on a drive the other day and pulled up one of my podcasts and found one that I just really loved. It was a new one for me. It was a Dr. Drew podcast. So he's a physician that some people might remember from MTV back in the days and stuff and, and really knowledgeable guy. So he started a podcast just so he could meet people and learn more because there's so many specialties in the area of medicine. And on the August 19th, 2020 episode, he had on Dr. Paul Saladino. And it was fascinating. He talked about disease and inflammation related specifically to the metabolic process of fat cells. And even more specifically, the fat cells in the adipose tissue. You always hear about the fat cells like around the organs, kind of the belly fat area. And how, how, what the mechanism, the actual chemical signals that trigger them to release inflammation signals to the rest of the body. And what made this so interesting is that's kind of an underlying problem with most of the current risk factors for like COVID. So if you have high level inflammation signals and then you get the COVID and that can be caused by say diabetes or heart or lung disease and stuff, a bunch of different ways, then that inflammation gets triggered by COVID. It doesn't go back down as fast as it does for people without these risk factors. 
And so the kind of the punchline of all this, he talks about how changing your diet, how that chemically changes how those adipose fat cells send out inflammation signals. So in the end, there's something you can actually do about it. So for me, it was really fun. Just it's a field outside of my own. And just I love that from time to time, like cosmology or medicine and stuff. And this one was great because this guy started out as a biochemist. So he really understood it down to the chemistry level. That's very cool. That actually reminds me, right? We talked about mindfulness a couple of episodes ago, and I understand you've been doing some some meditation. How's that going? I did. So you and I talked, and and you talked just about how much it helped you. And then yeah. um, Sean said he tried some, and and why I was going to try a little bit too. And so I found one very simple one, uh, meditation and relaxation app. And I'm right. doing seven minutes in the mornings, and it's that's yeah. a small enough, easy enough amount. Right. It's been uh, it's been really good. It's just a little mental break from, you know, the kind of mind racing kind of thing. And their little talk this morning was great. It's like imagine you're driving down the highway. Right. And your thoughts are trees and they're just whipping by. And then you realize, oh, there is actually spaces between the trees where there's no thoughts. So don't struggle to cut down all the trees. Just realize to enjoy the spaces in there and eventually make them a little larger. And like, what a simple kind of more gentle way to approach that whole idea of not trying to have your mind race all the time. Good stuff. Very cool. So so my pick this week um, actually has to do with your local library. It's it's an app called Hoopla, and you have to have a library card to use it. But it's it's got a web-based solution and, and an app. And when you log in, create a user, log in, attach your, your library card. It then gives you access to free comics and movies and audiobooks and music um, all, all through your local library. And I, I've listened to um, a ton of audiobooks through it. And, and I've actually uh, read several comics and their, their UI is, is really good. So that's, that's my pick for this week. Martin, do you have a pick for us? Not really a specific thing. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, at the start of this year, even before this entire uh, COVID stuff started to happen, I suddenly realized that as developers, there's nothing that we cannot do. And I mean, I see a lot of people doing woodworking and things like that. But I had at some points uh, purchased new Wi-Fi speakers uh, in the home. And I found that I could not play a specific music source from from um, from a very popular uh, video sharing website. Let's not uh, let's not give the name. <laughs> um, but yeah, I started looking into that, and uh, it actually was was a really big nerd snipe. I don't know if you're familiar with the term of uh, getting yourself busy with with looking into things and and being very distracted with that. But in the end, I built an app for personal use that doesn't make that happen. And I realized that I had to learn about how my Wi-Fi worked, about how encoding of media formats work, about actually writing a mobile application, which I never done before, in a different language and a different ecosystem. And I think just like Joel, your Dr. Drew podcast, where you start going outside of your typical way of thinking and typical realm of, uh, of, of interests, this was one of those things that was there as well, where I realized if you spend the time on something, you can actually learn a lot of things that are not immediately in the things that you do every single day. Yeah, learning for fun. You know, there's there's right. a yeah. there's a Simpsons episode where one of the they catch one of the kids studying, 
And uh, the big bully comes around the corner and goes, hey, he's learning on his own time. Let's get him. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, Martin, if people want to want to get in touch with you, what's the, what's the best way for them to do that? Find me on Twitter, uh, Martin Bellio. I know that's that's hard to spell from just the pronunciation, uh, but I guess you will find it in the show notes. Uh, there's my yeah, blog we'll as add well. it. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. All right. Well, hey, we we really appreciate you coming on. It's really interesting to hear hear how you know writer came to be and and your your uh, process of of creating it. And if, uh, if people want to get in touch with me or get in touch with the show, um, I'm now on Twitter. Surprise, surprise. Uh, it's not just Sean. Uh, you can reach me at uh, Caleb Wells Codes. And thanks for listening. And we'll, we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.